Warning, this film series, as well as this recording, contains sexually oriented material designed for mature adults only. This material is a documentary about sex and may contain highly explicit scenes of nudity and sexual activity. If you feel that this recording and the accompanying film may offend you, please refrain from viewing the film or from listening to the rest of this recording. And today I have with me Mabel Romero and Brian Fripp, two professors who have written a piece called The Right to Unmarry, which is both a wedding proposal, marriage proposal, and an argument that the right to unmarry is unduly burdened in essence. So my first question is for Professor Fry. Professor Fry, are you a prof only on my better days. Fair enough. Um, well, that was that was plausible deniability that I'm sure will stir things up. So, uh, Professor Romero, give me the basic gist of the argument. What what are you what are you seeking from from the law? Well, I really do think that what you see when you look at sort of the length of a marriage. Um, is something sort of, there's an interesting inequity, we think, um, when you're getting married versus when you're getting unmarried, um, especially in the sort of wake of Obergefell, where, um, you know, there were a lot of the burdens on the right to marry that, you know, were lifted. Um, you know, you don't necessarily usually have to wait to get married. You don't necessarily need to go through that much in the way of, you know, um, court approval or the like. Um, when I first got married, the entire process was going to a county clerks and getting a certificate and, you know, them saying, okay, you can get married tomorrow. And that was about it. You just needed two consenting adults and, you know, have at it. When it comes to actually getting unmarried though, there's so many more burdens that, you know, it, it, it just seems very, very unequal in that sense. There's a burden in that you have to go and file with a court to be able to unwind your marriage. Um, so first off, you have to submit to the jurisdiction of some court somewhere to be able to do this. Um, secondly, you get to put yourself sort of in the hands of a judge who gets to supervise how you go about unwinding your marriage. Um, and there's also, you know, sort of the time periods that you see often mandated in different states. Some states will require a 30-day waiting period, some 60 um, I believe Rhode Island is, you know, depending on how you go about approaching it, can be up to six months. So you see this encouragement of people getting, you know, go ahead, get married, you know, go and, you, you know, you wild and crazy kids, go get married, essentially, um, be happy. Um, but when it comes to when you've learned, realize that you've made a mistake, trying to unwind that is not nearly as encouraged, not nearly respected. And there are oftentimes lots of burdens such that it, I, I believe, and I think I can speak for the both of us, that it tramples on individual autonomy and the rights that are given um, and, well, not given, but recognized under Obergefell. Mm, yeah, I totally agree. And, 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 and to, to add to what Mabel just said, I mean, I think what part of what really, really got us thinking 
about this issue was the way that the Supreme Court talked about the constitutional meaning of marriage in Obergefell Mm -hmm. and specifically how it reflected on the way in which the right to marry reflected really fundamental aspects of individual autonomy and respect, mutual respect for people's decisions about how to define their relationships to each other. And of course, in Obergefell, the court was speaking to the refusal of certain states to recognize the legitimacy of same-sex marital relationships as being disrespectful to the legitimacy of the autonomous decisions of the people who wanted to engage in those relationships to to be in the relationships with each other, which, you know, I think the both of us couldn't agree with more, but we noticed a certain kind of discontinuity or um, perhaps a lack of parallelism, mm-hmm. as it were, in the sense that, you know, If it's unconstitutional for the state to prevent you from declaring and legitimizing your love for someone else, it seems like it's equally or it ought to be equally unconstitutional for the state to require you to remain in that kind of relationship when that love has has disappeared when it no longer exists in the sense that, you know, if, if it's an infringement on your autonomy and, and the respect for your autonomy to say you can't enter into a relationship, surely it's also an infringement uh, and disrespectful to your autonomy to say you must remain in this relationship as a legal matter until the state says that you're permitted to dissolve it. Okay, so you both uh, have mentioned Obergefell, uh, uh, and there's some criticism out there that you're over-relying on. Um, and I, I get the notion that, uh, and, I, and my, I'm going to spin that a different way. I mean, there, there's, the, there's the argument that, of course, you can't extend Obergefell to the back end of the marriage when the argument is about the front end of the marriage. So you're, you're unduly extending that. My, my other argument, and this is going to be a bit more, uh, a bit more uh, cynical, is it's, there's been a game change in, in the Supreme Court since that decision, obviously. So how, how, how risky is it to rely on I don't necessarily think that we're over relying on Obergefell at all. And I, I think it's really interesting that people seem to view the beginning of a marriage as somehow dis- completely distinct from the end, as if they were completely different entities and, you know, not related to each other. Um, you know, I talked about this to some extent in a blog post on the faculty lounge a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, it, it's not like somehow we have some distinct point in the marriage where it's like, okay, this is the beginning and this is the end and this is where the analysis should change. Um, it, you know, most of the restrictions that come at the front end, as you put it, of a marriage are going to apply to the back end. I mean, for example, I can't go ahead and marry a sibling, you know. Not that I'd ever be inclined to, but I can't do that. 
you know, um, I can't marry, you know, a chair or something like that. It's got to be, you know, an adult who's also consenting with me. And no, he's not a chair, nor is he my brother. Um, So, you know, we've got that, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so, you know, those restrictions are going to apply equally, though, when I end up getting unmarried. You know, I can't get divorced from my sibling. I can't get divorced from a chair because I wasn't able to get married to them in the first place. Um, so I really do think that this distinction between front end versus back end is actually, um, you know, everyone buys into this distinction, but I really think that we all should be questioning it a bit more. And, you know, I, we're always confronted with this question when it comes to this paper that look, the the supposed back end of a marriage is very different because oftentimes there are all kinds of obligations that you've taken up together during the course of a marriage. For example, marital debt, other sorts of property that's been purchased, you know, together during the marriage. Perhaps there have been children that have, you know, been issue of the marriage. Um, but, you know, or maybe there are problems like health insurance that really rely on this status of being married or not being married. But these are all you know, regulatory issues that can be handled apart from whether a person is married or not. Oftentimes what you'll see going to family court and getting a disposition of being divorced is that the court will have continuing jurisdiction over your case to look at issues of property distribution and other debts and stuff in future. Why can't that actually happen earlier such that, look, I have filed for divorce. I've asked for divorce. Okay, you can get divorced. We'll look at these property distributions and other sorts of benefits after the fact. There's nothing really to prevent that except for perhaps the health insurance market objecting to it. Um, you know, and other you know industries that might be interested in having this adjudicated later in the process. So in that sense, I don't think that we're relying too much on Obergefell at all, so much as other people are relying too much on this very colloquial understanding as to what the end of a marriage should look like. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. And I would actually characterize what we're doing as, quote unquote, taking Obergefell seriously, right? In other words, when Obergefell came out, I think a lot of people, rightly, in my opinion, reflected on and were pleased by the language of Obergefell and how it talked about marriage and the meaning of marriage and why that meaning was relevant to same-sex marriage. And I think ultimately all we're really doing is saying, look, if we take these principles seriously, what do they mean about marital status and how we ought to think about interpersonal relationships. And and I agree, right? I think we both have to agree that obviously the makeup of the court has changed. Who knows whether, well, who knows? I mean, the current court, would, I think, would be unlikely to produce another Obergefell opinion, uh, for better or for worse, in my opinion, probably for, for worse. worse. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that's that's the way it is. But 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 really, I don't ultimately think our article is directed at the court because, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, we're both well aware that the Supreme Court doesn't give a fuck what we think, right? But maybe <laughs> maybe other law professors do. And I think in a lot of ways, our paper is more directed at the scholarly community thinking about marital relationships and suggesting that, 
you know, if we believe Obergefell was the right way to think about the meaning of marital relationships in a constitutional sense, then perhaps that ought to inflect the way we think about the dissolution of marital relationships as well. Okay, this rapid fire question time. Ryan, is marriage a contract? Uh, I think it depends on who you ask. Oh. Yes, <laughs> 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 what a I, cop out. <laughs> it's a contract, but also a status and also an obligation. Um, but, you know, like anything, like what is a contract anyway? Is it an exclusive contract if it is a contract? Mm, I think it depends on who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, for most Americans, no. Oh, really? Oh. Um. So if one enters into a marriage contract, and let us suppose that you you choose to terminate that contract. Now, you understand, I know you mentioned this, you mentioned this in the the article, um, there are transaction costs related to that. So my hypothetical to you is this. Let us suppose I get married and I discover that the person I have married uses an Instamod. Oh, my gosh. So, I get divorced. Uh, Under your theory. Now, there are still a variety of of assets that we still have to deal with under the first marriage, but suppose that I have declared my desire to get divorced and that those assets will come along at some point but then I decided I've discovered someone who really likes two spaces after a period, and I proposed. Aww. So I'm in a, another marriage, but my assets from the previous marriage have yet to be resolved. Is that a problem under your theory? No. Definitely Why not. not. I mean, I, I don't think it'd be very difficult to you know, provide an accounting to each other as to what the marital property was and still try to figure out a disposition of that fairly and equitably after getting divorced and even after getting remarried. Yeah. I mean, if anything, I think most marriages are much simpler than the relationships between various business entities. I mean, as an attorney in practice, you know, I, among other things, help represent a bunch of hedge funds and so on. I did all kinds of crazy stuff when I was in practice. Um, you know, and the, the, I mean, honestly, the, um, the, the nested and incestuous relationships between the various LLCs involved in hedge funds would put the, you know, would, would, would kink shame any marriage I could possibly imagine. Oh gosh. (laughs) So so the other question is now suppose I want a free one. Uh, suppose my the person I'm seeking to marry the second time wants a prenup. It's not possible to actually understand the nature of of what sorts of assets I would I would want to contend with under the second marriage until the first marriage is resolved. Is that correct? I mean, I'm not I'm not so sure. I mean, and like, and to the extent it presents problems, I don't think they're really unique problems. No, I, don't I mean, think so either. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if I may, I, I mean, I really think a, a big part of, of this is that 
unsurprisingly, and I think, you know, this really ought to be an uncontroversial observation, you know, family law is heavily inflected by the history of gender relationships and gender inequity. And so, you know, a lot of the law is situated in a context of thinking about what are the practical consequences of these decisions going to be. And and I think our intervention is really intended not to say there should be no consequences or that we shouldn't think about gender inequity, but rather to say that autonomy and respect are possible irrespective of how we think about how the law should intersect with social relationships and how the law should think about how to mitigate those kinds of gender inequities that we rightly are concerned about. Yeah, you know, we've had a few people accuse us of trying to say that people should be able to ditch their obligations altogether. And that's, like Brian was just saying, certainly not true. And in your hypothetical with regard to the prenup, then, you know, certainly you could just write it such that look, you know, we're only going to be dealing with assets that are, you know, acquired by both parties to the second marriage from the time that they get married forward. Um, That wouldn't be too hard to reconcile, you know, without, you know, figuring out what a good distribution of assets would be from the first marriage. Um, We're not saying, hey, you get to ditch a marriage whenever you want. And because of that, you get to ditch all your obligations, like, you know, perhaps your former spouse needs some help, like something that looks like alimony. Maybe they need help with health insurance. Maybe you should be paying child support. We're not saying that that should somehow all go down the drain so much as that all those obligations should not be so dependent on whether you happen to be married or not at the moment. Um, And in that sense, you know, again, I think we really are taking this question of what marriage means and the individual autonomy that goes into choosing someone that you love and marrying them as you know, described in Obergefell a lot more seriously than a lot of other people in not completely tying it down only to debts and obligations and what property you own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think really fundamentally, and maybe we don't say this explicitly in the paper, but I hope it's implicit in the project itself, right? I mean, I think a big part of the, the, the problem is that we're engaging with this question of whether or not it's legitimate for the government to express moral social values through the law and in a sense to judge people's personal relationships in 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 the form of legislation and i think part of what obergefell was really about and part of the reason it was rightly perceived as being so radical was that it says it's not the government's place to judge the legitimacy of how people define the meaning of their lives and the meaning of their lives and relationship to other people and what we're doing is saying we should really take that seriously and say Look, it's not the it's not the role of the government to judge people's decisions and to judge what matters to people and to judge and to judge the meaning of people's lives. Okay. So you you've actually opened up a couple of questions and, and 
And uh, I assume that the dog barking in the background was the cool the person who actually wrote the paper because I understand you plagiarize this whole thing, right? Yeah, I, I plagiarize everything, as you know. <laughs> so, I, 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 as you know, plagiarism is the highest form of literary and academic love, right? Because copyright infringers only want your profits, but plagiarizers want your work to be their own. I said that. Maybe it was So back to back to your argument. So it seems to me it rests on the notion that your 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 former spouse is consenting to to the divorce. Is is that right? Mm-hmm. Is that a, a, a fundamental think necessarily at all to get married in the first place you've got to have two consenting adults and I think to remain married you should have two consenting adults um so I really do think that you should be able to exit a marriage whenever you feel like unilaterally and if you still have issues with property distribution that could be handled you know after the fact but you should be able to at least take on that change of status and say look you know we are no longer married any longer I can move on with my life. I can, you know, perhaps go and, you know, potentially get remarried even, but that does not somehow erase this obligation, these sorts of conflicts that we might have when it comes to property distribution or child support or anything like that. Um, those, those determinations should be made entirely separate apart from the status of are you married or not? And, and I think that that's the part that, you know, a lot of people miss out on when they're reading this. And I think something that we're going to have to work on in our draft and that weird as this might sound, it's like the ultimate and sort of like sort of romantic sort of family law theories. We actually think that the statute is saying, yes, we are married, even apart from what property you bring into it or accumulate or the children that you have or something. But just that commitment that you make to each other, you know, that sort of public expression of love in and of itself means something on its own. Yeah. And I think, I think it's kind of ironic that the conservative position on most business contracts is one of efficient breach. Um, (laughs) And essentially what we're doing is proposing an efficient breach theory of marriage. Oh, well, efficient breach requires, uh, you know, uh, wealth maximizing, right? So there has to be, if you're creating some external transaction cost, then, then efficient breach should be deterred. That's not breach. I, I mean, I would suggest that efficient breach only requires happiness maximizing. And my, I, I think our, if I can speak for Maybell as well, I mean, I think our proposal is essentially that it's always happiness maximizing to terminate a marriage if one of the parties to the marriage doesn't want to be in it anymore. So this actually brings me to another question because you're actually talking about the ethical the ethical judgments of the state upon the marriage unit. So I have another hypothetical for you. So suppose that I have, it, it is illegal to be employed in this. But suppose that uh, my religion is trying to get, you know, try not to violate the law, but at the same time, I'm trying to, to get as close to that as possible. So is it possible 
uh, the, the, the one of the mother ramifications intellectually of your, of your argument is that I could actually engage in a series of rolling contracts for marriage. Life number one, from, from uh, January to April, and from life number two, May to, to July. Cool. Great. <laughs> yeah, sure you could. Yeah. I mean, who am I to deter someone from doing that? Mm, 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 mm. I mean, yeah. I mean, and, and and I guess my feeling would be that as a general matter, we don't, we don't, we already don't think it's legitimate for the state to regulate people's intimate relationships with others, even though, of course, socially, we judge people for those kinds of relationships all the time, for for better or for worse. And marriage is just about the state's imprimatur on those relationships. And from a functional perspective, I, I think we ought to really think about, you know, to what extent should should the state feel comfortable defining how people are allowed to live, how people are allowed to understand their relationship to their own autonomy and place in the world and their relationship to other people? And why not be a little more open-minded about it? Like, why not let people figure that out for themselves rather than tell them what they have to do, whether they like it or not. I mean, you know, different strokes for different folks. I mean, to to some extent, I mean, I'll, I'll let you in, all in on a little bit of a secret in that I really don't believe that the government should be in the business of regulating marriage at all, except for perhaps, you know, sort of extreme situations when you're talking about, you know, non-consenting, you know, you know, minors or something like that. Of course I have a problem with that. But if you're talking about consenting adults, I couldn't care less. And I don't think the government should care less. But this paper does acknowledge that we are in a sort of, you know, situation such that the government does regulate it. And, you know, how can we perhaps offer some, you know, suggestions and maybe practical solutions as to how to make those regulations less burdensome. Yeah, yeah. And if I can add to what Madewell just said, I mean, I think one of the, and I think under-recognized, but perhaps most subversive things that we tried to do in the paper was recognize that really what the court was doing in Obergefell was saying that the right to marry is a right that belongs to individuals to compel the state to recognize the legitimacy of their relationship to each other, right? And 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 at the end of the day, I really think that that right, the right that people have to tell the state, I'm okay, and you have to admit that I'm okay. Yeah, you state recognize this. You state recognize me and my partner as having a relationship with each other that we've chosen that's worthy of respect, I think that's a really profoundly kind of transgressive of many (laughs) social norms kind of move and one that I really like. 
and one that I think is really worth highlighting and recognizing. And I think an aspect of at least what I see as the necessary implications of Obergefell that have not really been fully recognized and hopefully um, implications that can mean a lot to a lot of marginalized communities of people whose legitimacy is not recognized and whose sense of themselves is not recognized and whose relationships to each other are not recognized. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who deserve respect and I hope, I think we hope that, you know, Obergefell is really about saying people deserve the respect of the state and the state saying what you're doing is okay. Uh, T, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you a, a couple of a, a couple of minor questions. Uh, first of all, will the wedding be podcast? <laughs> I don't, what do you think? Of course, we'll have to absolutely, right? <laughs> and it, podcast and more. Oh my! Okay. <laughs> With live video. Oh, we, oh, we, Law Prof Blog, we have ideas. We do. (laughs) Well, I'm very happy for you both, and I wish you you both all the best. And it was a very interesting read of your papers. It was very interesting, and of course, got me to thinking. And I wanted to disclose for the audience that I was asked to hit the bar with with questions. So I may have no advanced knowledge of what I was going to ask it, but my argument, neither did I. (laughs) <laughs> well thank you for, for clearing that up for everyone <laughs> hit us harder buddy <laughs> oh my okay we're probably that for divorce. But before you consult your own lawyer, listen carefully to the simulated interview between Walter E. Hurst, Hollywood attorney, and his client. It will teach you the basic facts and will help you prepare for what you need to know when interviewed. This record is divided by bands into a checklist of questions and answers. Band one is about statistics, names, addresses, and general information concerning all parties involved husband, wife, and children. Band two takes in background and reasons for divorce. Band three involves custody of children. Band four discusses property. 